Good morning. How are you all doing? Good. Good to see you. You're looking good. God's been taking care of you. That's good. Hey, I want to welcome those of you who are in the chapel, the warehouse. Maybe you're joining us online today. We're glad you are here and along for, uh, along for the ride. I'm Jeff Surratt. Um, I know a lot of you, a lot of you I don't know. Uh, if we haven't met before, I was here for 14 years at Seacoast, and uh, this is still my church home, still watch online, join First Wednesday here at the Long Point campus a lot online. Um, and so we are back this weekend visiting, and so Greg graciously invited me to come and, and speak. So I'm excited. Let me, those of you I know, let me catch you up a little bit. I know you're just dying to know all my family business, so I'll catch up on that, and then we'll dive in. You know, I left here about 14 months ago, Sherry and I did, moved to California, and I went to work for Saddleback Church with Rick Warren, had an awesome experience there, helping them with uh, creating their church planning strategy and their regional strategy and, and all of that. But a couple of months ago, uh, Sherry accepted an offer. A group had been uh, pursuing her for quite some time, and finally she accepted an offer to become the CEO of Mops International. I don't know if you've heard of Mops. It's mothers of preschoolers. So, uh, yeah, you can clap for Sherry. That's great. And as much as we tried to get Mops to move their international headquarters from Denver to California, they wouldn't do it. And so we left California, and we moved to uh, Denver, and I did not know this. You may have known this. Did you know it's cold in Denver? I, I have lived in the South for 30 years. Turns out it snows there all the time. So we're actually here this weekend just to thaw out. So we're, and they had seven more inches this weekend, so, and we were so sad to have missed it. Um, I, <laughs> I'm not working with Saddleback anymore now. I'm working with uh, just helping churches around the country, uh, doing speaking, helping them with church planting and multi-site, and also leading an organization called uh, exponential. And so that's so now we're all updated with what's going on in my life. I know you can rest easy tonight. One other change that's gone uh, for me um, is that I now love to cook. And I never have, a, cooking for me in the past was pushing the lever down for the Pop-Tart. You know what I'm saying? That was kind of a, was kind of a meal for me. But I've discovered that cooking actually combines two of my loves in life. I love tools and gadgets, and cooking is full of those, and I love food. So I get to play with tools and make food. I mean, how much better can it be than that? The downside is, is I have been really trying to cook for the last six weeks or so, doing recipes and all that. The downside is, is so far I have shown absolutely no talent for cooking at all. None. <laughs> totally evades me. Doesn't slow me down, however. So a couple of weeks ago, we had one of the big food holidays of the year, right? We had Valentine's Day. So you want to have a great meal on Valentine's Day. So I thought, I will cook a great meal for Valentine's Day. So I, I went on this website, Epicurious. I found this, this, uh, this uh, recipe that was perfect because it required me to go buy new tools. It was awesome. So I went to the Lowe's of cooking, you know, and went into the kitchen, kitchen store and I bought something called a, a potato ricer. I have no idea what it does, but it's, it's metal and it's shiny and it has sharp parts. So I like that. And I, and I bought something called a garlic press. Again, don't know what that does, but it, it looked cool. Got all these new tools. Oh, I got a frying pan. It's like this big. I love it. It's great. It's got a big old hand. It's awesome. So, so then I went to the market and I got this real expensive cut of meat. So like, but it's Valentine's, right? The best for my sweetheart. So I get this expensive cut of meat because it's all about sherry, right? It's all, it, it is. So, so I cooked this meal. I have to say it came out really good. I mean, the meat was done just perfect. And we had mashed potatoes that were fluffy and, and, and spiced and really good. And there's vegetables that were good. They're just one slight problem, small little hiccup 
in the cooking, and the hiccup is I have no idea how to use garlic. No idea at all. And my thinking is, uh, if a little garlic's good, right, then a lot of garlic's got to be great. Yeah, not so much. Um, you know, Sherry was wonderful. She took a couple of bites, and she said, wow, <laughs> this is food that just stands up and says, hey. And I said, do you like it? And she said, wow. <laughs> I said, would you like some more? And she said, you know, sometimes some food is so good that just a couple of bites just kind of does it for you. I'm honest, I can still taste the garlic now. And we're going to have to have our house torn down to take over the garlic. You know, that happens though. In, in a lot of areas in our life, just that one thing, that one mistake, being off that one area can ruin everything else. When I was in school, we used to take tests and they called the answer sheet a scantron. Do you guys remember those? And they'd have all the numbers and then you'd have all the circles and you'd have to fill in the right circle. Did you ever take one of those tests and get off one question? You know what I'm saying? You thought you were filling in two, but you're filling in three. That can really mess up a test. Or for some of you, it might make your score better. I don't know. I could... Just that one thing, that one question off. You can be a, you can invest in stocks and you just make that one wrong choice and it plummets and it mess up your portfolio. We, we've discovered we own one too many homes in California right now. Um, yeah, we have a lovely home. We'd love to uh, let somebody else own. And that one thing, that one mistake, that, that one purchase is really negatively impacting all of our finances. And it, it happens mostly, uh, most often in, in relationships. I mean, one thing can go wrong in a relationship. One, one ingredient, one piece is off. And, and what seemed like a great relationship can really, can really be messed up. And, and really, what uh, we're talking about in Galatians. You guys are going through a series called The New Normal, going through the book of Galatians. And basically, that's what Paul is talking about. Because he is saying that if our relationship with God is off, then it's going to impact every other relationship. It's like the garlic in my food impacted everything else. And I would, I would say to you today, and, and, and I know this, this might not go down so well, but I would say most of you have a wrong picture of your relationship with God. I know that many days I have a wrong picture of my relationship with God. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today in Galatians chapter 4. But before we get that, let me, let me just recap real quick. I know you've, you've been down this road, but here's what happens is Paul goes to this city called Galatia, and he preaches the gospel, the good news. He says, dudes, here's the deal. You, right now in your life, you are lost, you are purposeless, you are headed dead-end life. But because Jesus came and he died on a cross, he paid the penalty for your sin, he offers you free grace. You can go from being lost to being found. You can go from being purposeless to having a purpose. You can go from a dead-end life to an eternal life. And it's a free gift from Jesus. All you have to do is accept God's grace, God's love, and you begin this relationship. And a lot of the Galatians said, that sounds awesome. We're in. Count us in. How, why, how could you say no to an offer like that? So Paul leaves. He goes to another city. And right behind him, some guys come in from Jerusalem, some Jews. And they say, you know, sometimes things that seem too good to be true are too good to be true. Well, the thing that Paul preached is, it really is, it's too good to be true. He, he, he was right about Jesus and grace and all that. That's all great. But... What he left out is you, you have to be circumcised. Really, to experience this freedom in Christ, you have to be first, you have to be circumcised. And Paul hears about this, and he's like, you are kidding me. 
Because you see, Paul knows that circumcision is just the beginning. It's the gateway drug to legalism. Paul knows that circumcision is just one of 613 Old Testament laws. And if you follow those laws to get to God, you have to follow all of them. You can't just pick and choose. And Paul has been down that road. That is what his life was, was trying to follow these 613 laws to get to God. And he knows that it leads nowhere, that no one can do it. And so Paul is ticked off. There is no other way to put it. Uh, They call uh, Galatians an angry memo, an angry letter. He sits down, he writes this letter, and he basically says, what are you thinking And why is Paul so angry? Why is he so upset about this this circumcision deal? Because he knows that this is the garlic. This is what will destroy their relationship with God. That will flow out into their marriages. It will flow out into their friendships. It will flow out into their families. And it will ruin and taint everything it touches. And so he says, we have got to deal with this now. And so that's the whole theme of Galatians. And what we're going to look at in chapter 4 is he's going to say, okay, okay, I've kind of laid out the legal piece of it. Now I want to give you a picture, a contrasting picture of what legalism versus liberty looks like. And so that's what we'll dive into. But before we get into the scripture, would you guys pray with me today? Father, thank you so much uh, for this privilege, for this opportunity to be at this unbelievable church. Lord, thank you for the leaders here, the staff and the volunteers and the people that you work through. Thank you for the lives that you're changing through this church. And Lord, so humbling to be asked today to stand on this stage. Lord, I pray you'll speak through me. I pray that over the next few minutes, um, we will get a right picture of your love for us. So Lord, we just turn this time over to you. Lord, we ask it in your name. Amen. You're going to need today, if you brought a Bible with you, if you pop it open to Galatians chapter 4, if you have a smartphone, if you'll go to version and go to Galatians chapter 4, or you can follow along, we'll have the scripture on the screen. But we're basically just going to look through that scripture today. We're going to start Galatians 4 verse 1 with the first picture that Paul paints of a relationship, a right relationship with God. And he says this, he says, think of it this way, if a father dies and leaves an inheritance for his young children... Those children are not, not much better off than slaves until they grow up, even though they actually own everything their father had. They have to obey their guardians until they reach whatever age their father set. And that's the way it was with us before Christ came. We were like children. We were slaves to the basic spiritual principles of this world. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us, who were slaves to the law, so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father, now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Paul is drawing a contrast here. He is saying, this is the difference between being a slave and being a son or a daughter, slave versus son. Let's look at it this way. Any of you, have any of you ever worked at Chick-fil-A in your life? Worked at Chick-fil-A? Several people have, several have. Well, let's just all pretend we're working for Chick-fil-A, right? So put yourself in the, in the uniform, put your uh, little name tag on. We need to have the Chick-fil-A test to make sure you're good enough to work there. If I say thank you, you say, my pleasure. Very good. We're all good. We're qualified. So you're in Chick-fil-A one day, you're working hard, you're slinging the sodas out, you're getting the waffle fries, you're selling the 
greatest sandwich that human hands have ever made, the Chick-fil-A fried chicken sandwich, and you're, you're, you're selling those, getting that going. And an older gentleman walks in, and he says, can I talk to you for a second? And he says, sure. He's off to the side, if you don't mind. And he says, well, okay, sure. So you go over, and this older gentleman says, you know, you don't know me, but I know you. In fact, I know a lot about you. I know about your family. I know about your background. Um, I, I, I kind of have been following you for, for, for a long time. And don't, don't, don't get creeped out. I, I, this, it's okay. So let me introduce myself. I'm Truett Cathy. Um, I'm the man who founded Chick-fil-A, and I, I own the whole, the, whole com- the whole company. And I want to tell you, I just, I love you. I want to adopt you. I want to make you one of my children. You're going to be an heir to the Cathy fortune. And in fact, you can keep working here at this Chick-fil-A. That's great. We love that. But just know that you're not just an employee. You're now a son. You're now a daughter. You're a part of the Kathy family. How would that impact the way you approach working at Chick-fil-A? I mean, before you worked hard, right? Because if you worked hard, you got a paycheck. If you worked hard enough, you might get more hours. You might get, you might get a raise. You might even become a, a leader at Chick-fil-A. But now... You are not no longer an employee because as an employee, if you didn't work hard, you'd get fired and then you wouldn't have a job anymore. But that's not what has happened. Truett Cathy has said, you are now adopted. You are now my son. You are now my daughter. Someday you're going to inherit this whole thing. How would that change the way you approached your day-to-day relationship with Chick-fil-A? It would be a huge change. See, there's a contrast Paul is trying to draw. He's, he's trying to say that before Christ... The Jews worked for God, and they had all of these rules to keep, and they tried to keep all of these rules. And if they kept the rules, then things went well for them. If they broke the rules, then things didn't go well. But then Christ came, and he kept all the rules, and he offered the opportunity to be adopted by God. We would no longer be slaves to the rules, but now we would be sons of the owner. In contrast, slave and son. A slave obeys because of the threat of punishment. A son obeys because of the bond of family. A slave is rewarded based on performance. A son is rewarded based on relationship. Once you were a, a, a slave, now you're a son. Now, those of us who have been around church, been around Christianity for a long time, we all get this in our heads, right? We all understand that. But we don't live our lives that way. We still live as though we are slaves as though there are these lists of rules that we follow and that's, what our, that's how we relate to God. But the truth is, is God is not our supervisor demanding performance. God is not saying, hey, did, did you read your Bible this morning? Did you read your Bible yesterday? Did you read your Bible before that? How long did you read your Bible? Are you doing one of those version Bible reading plans? I noticed there's a couple of days you missed reading your Bible. There's a, there's a hole in your calendar. What is that about? You're not really keeping up your side of the bargain, are you? Did you pray this morning? How long did you pray? How did you pray? Are you one of those people who sets aside five minutes to pray, 10 minutes to pray, 30 minutes to pray? Maybe you're one of those who prays between flipping people off on the way to work when you're driving in your car. That's not very good prayer. And I don't like that kind of prayer. So you need to read your Bible more. You need to pray more. What about missional? Pastor Greg's been talking about missional. Are you being missional? I don't think you're being very missional. Are you helping the poor? Are you helping the hungry? Are you feeding the homeless? Are you giving homes to the hungry and the helpless? What are you doing? Are you doing? What's about about the missional thing? You're tired of hearing missional? Well, I don't like you then. That's how we feel about God. We think we don't say it, but we think that's how he relates. And it's not. The best picture I can have as a father relating is now that my children are grown, and this is exactly what Paul describes. He says, when you were young... You were a slave. You were just like a slave. You had all these rules you had to obey. 
But when you grow up, you don't have to obey those rules anymore. This is how I relate to my adult children. When I come visit them, like visit them like I'm visiting this weekend, I don't walk into their house and go, well, are you keeping all of my rules? Well, are you doing what I tell you to do? Well, are you acting the way that I want? No. I come in and I, I say, how are things going? How's work? Are you enjoying it? How about home? How's things here? How's little Maggie Claire, my granddaughter? How's, how's she doing? And that's what we talk about. And I'm not saying, are you living up? Are you performing? I'm saying, how's life? How can we connect? How can we help? Can we be a part of your life? And that's the relationship. That's the son relationship. And so Paul gives that first picture. You used to be slaves. Now you're sons. You used to be workers. Now you are heirs. So that's, that's number one, slave versus son. Do me a favor. You got a blank sheet of paper when you came in that said notes. I'd love for you on that piece of paper to draw a straight line across it and make a continuum. And on the left side of the continuum, write the word slave. And on the right side, write the word son. And then just kind of do your own self-analysis. When you relate to God, do you feel like you relate more on the slave side or more on the son side of the continuum? So that's the first picture. Let's look at the second picture. We're going to pick up in Galatians uh, 4, verse 8. And Paul's going to contrast rules versus relationship. First, he describes rules. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say, now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world? You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years. I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things. For I have become like you Gentiles, free from these laws. Paul's describing rules. You say, Galatians, you guys, you guys want rules. You want a scorecard. You want to know how are we doing with God? You know, if I keep a law, I get five points. If I celebrate a festival, I get 15 points. If I can get Bubba to be circumcised, 100 points, all right? That's awesome. So I got this scorecard. I know how I'm doing with God. And Paul says, I've been down that road. I've celebrated the festivals. I've kept the laws. I've done the circumcision, done the whole thing. It doesn't work. He says, it's not, it's not a scorecard. It's not rules. It's a relationship. And so he, he draws a contrast to that and now describes his relationship with the Galatians, picking up in verse 13. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn me away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor that their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as though I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. Imagine... Um, what, what, what Paul's saying here. Um, he's saying the Galatians came to know Christ, but now they, they want to follow rules. 
See, like Sherry and I have been married, this August we'll have been married 30 years. Imagine me going to Sherry on our anniversary and saying, sweetheart, first 30 years were great. Loved it. Awesome. You know, great relationship. Had kids, had grandkids. It's great. Love, love, love that. Tell you what let's do, though. Let's, let's make a shift for the next 30 years. I want to have a better feel for where I stand with you and where you stand with me. So let's draw up some rules, right? Let, let's, let's get some black and white rules, and let's kind of attach a, a scorecard to our marriage so that I'll know and you'll know where we stand. So if you do something nice for me, you, come, you cook me dinner, you know, that's a five-pointer, so good job for you. Or you forget to call when you tell me you're going to call, so that's a minus 10, not, not so good. And, and we'll just have all these black and white rules, and then once a week, instead of date night, we'll just do a scorecard review, right? And we'll pull out our scorecards, and we'll see who's ahead in our relationship. What do you think? Now, how many of you think Sherry's going to say, that's a great idea? How many of you think Sherry's going to say, I'm going to knock you upside the head. What is wrong with you? Paul's saying to the Galatians, that's exactly what you're doing. You received Christ's love freely. He loved you not because of anything you did, but just because God loved you so much that he was willing to send his son to die for you. But now you want to go back and you want to set up all these rules and regulations. And we do the same thing. We accept Jesus as our Savior. We accept his forgiveness. We, we have this relationship with God. But then we move over into this rule-based thing and we use it to analyze our own life. Are we following the rules that we've set up for ourselves? But we also use it to analyze everybody else. I know whether you're a Christian. I know how to relate to you if you fit how you fit in my matrix of rules that I've created. And everyone's got their own matrix. It, it may have to do with externals. It may have to do with attitude, whatever it is. And then that's how we base how we relate to God, how we relate to each other is on these external rules. And Paul says that's not it at all. It is not rules, it's relationship. See, we like the, the rule-based thing because there, there are some advantages to it. See, in a rule-based type, type, type of connection, I know exactly where I stand. I know how I'm doing. I know if I'm ahead. I know if I'm behind. I, I know if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do because I know what the rules are. You know what the rules are. In a rule-based relationship, it's, it's very predictable because if I do X, you do Y, right? And if you do Y, I do X. And, and we understand that. This is how I relate to a policeman. When I follow the rules, we have a great relationship. If I stay under the speed limit, I stop at the red light, I signal when I'm going to change lanes, he might pull me over, but he pulls me over to see if I want to Diet Coke. You know, he just wants to hang out. He wants to chat. Theoretically, it would be like that, Right? But the reality is, is as soon as I break a law, he's just all over me. He's like writing me a ticket, and I got to pay a fine, and I got to go to court. See, but that is a rules-based relationship. I know exactly how we relate. The challenge with a rules-based relationship, though, is if you break any one of the rules, then you've broken all of them. The relationship is broken. And as I said earlier, Paul knew there are 613 Old Testament laws. He said, is that really the route you want to go? Here they are. Scroll. Here's 613. You, you, you really want to go try to approach God like that. The other problem with a rules-based relationship is it's extremely shallow. There's no depth to that kind of relationship. Imagine if Sherry came into me one night and, and she's been at work all day and she comes in and she gives me a big hug, gives me a kiss on the cheek. She says, I love you. Well, I love you too. And she says, now, that was rule 603B, and I did it, check off right there, and are we good? We're good? Okay, great. 
Can you imagine how warm that would make me feel? I wonder how God feels when we go, oh, I did my quiet time. Great. Check off quiet time. That's great. I came to church this weekend. Feeling pretty good about that. We'll check that one off. Actually, I went over and I served at the Dream Center. Check, 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 check. I get three checks for that. That's awesome. God's going, seriously? Is that that really the way we're going to connect? I mean, I send my, I love you so much. I send my only son to sacrifice his life and die for you on a cross. And, and the way you want to relate is based on the things you do and don't do and, and, and a rules kind of thing. Wow. That, wow. See, that's the problem. We have this distorted picture of our relationship with God. We get it in our head, in our heart. We play it out as though it's rules. We're a slave versus son, rules versus relationship. On your piece of paper, draw another line, a straight line, just like the one above, a continuum. On the left side, I want you to write rules. And on the right side, I want you to write relationship. On a normal day-to-day basis, not when you're sitting in holy on church on a Sunday, but on a normal day-to-day basis, do you relate more to God based on rules that you keep and don't keep or more on this love relationship side? One picture, one more picture, last picture from Galatians. Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? The scripture says that Abraham has two sons, one from his slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman, and she is our mother, as Isaiah said. Rejoice, O childless woman, you who have never given birth. Break into a joyful shout, you who have never been in labor. For the desolate woman now has more children than the woman who lives with her husband. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law just as Ishmael. The child born by human effort persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the Spirit. But what do the scriptures say about that? Get rid of the slave and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, we are children of the free woman. So what is Paul doing here? What what, what is he What does he mean with this story? Well, let's kind of recap the story. Some of you know it fairly well. Some of you may not. What happens is God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to bless your sons and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. In fact, I'm going to eventually bless the entire human race through your, your family. And Abraham says, that's awesome. And he goes to Sarah and says, Sarah, unbelievable. God talked to me today. He's going to bless my son and grandson and grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He's going to bless the whole human race through my kids. Sarah says, that's great. Abe, you don't have any kids. What is wrong with you? Oh, I've missed that part. So Sarah thinks, oh, okay, God is drawing up a contract. And in this contract, his part is he promises to bless uh, Abraham's children. Our part is to figure out how to get Abraham some children. So we'll do our part of the contract, then God will do his part of the contract. 
So Sarah goes and gets her, her maid and goes to Abraham and says, Abe, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sleep with my maid, get her pregnant, and then that'll be our child. Now Abraham, being a typical stupid man, says, you want me to sleep with your maid. Okay, I'll do that. I'll do it for you. So you guys didn't get stupid yesterday. We've been working at this for a long time. So he does. He sleeps with her. She gets pregnant. She has a baby. Sarah goes, done deal. We did our part of the contract. Now God will do his part of the contract. And God goes, it never was a contract. It was a promise. I promised I would bless your children. And now I'm going to provide the children and bless them. And Sarah is an old lady by now. No possibility she can have kids. She gets pregnant. She has Isaac. And Isaac becomes the son of of the promise of God. It's a covenant. See, a contract is quid pro quo. You do your part, I do my part. You break your promise or I break my promise, the contract is broken. A covenant doesn't work that way. A covenant says, I promise. I commit to it. And I'm not going to break my promise. It's not based on what you do or don't do. It's based on what I'm promising. And that's what God gave Abraham. It was his covenant. It was his promise. It was a promise that continues today. The best illustration that we have of a covenant is, is a marriage covenant, a marriage vow. Did any of you, uh, do like Sherry and I, uh, like Sherry and I did, we have the traditional vows. Very many of you have the, the old traditional vows. You raise your hand. Yeah, yeah. I love those vows because they're a great illustration of covenant. In fact, let me read what I said to Sherry when we got married 30 years ago. I, Jeff, take you, Sherry, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward until death do us part. Did you notice there were no clauses, no qualifications, no quid, no pro, no quo? It's just, here's what I promise to do. That's what a covenant is. That's the relationship God has with us. There's a a movie that came out on Valentine's Day, and uh, I know I'm going to have my man card revoked right now, but I'm going to tell you, I went, I went to see the movie. Any of you take your bride to see The Vow? The Vow came out. Yeah, it was a chick flick, and all the girls were crying, and I was crying, and <laughs> Sherry was laughing at me. And... But at the end of the movie, it said, based on a true story. So I went, and I researched the true story. I'd never heard about this story before, and actually, the real story was a lot more intriguing than what Hollywood put up on the screen. It's about a man named Kim and a woman named Cricket. And Kim, uh, back in the 90s, was a coach of a small college in Las Vegas, New Mexico. He was a baseball coach, and he needed to order some equipment, and he called a sporting goods company, and a woman answered the phone named Cricket. And he was intrigued. She had a pretty voice. She was very nice on the phone, and, and, and he just thought, wow, what a, what a friendly person, what a nice, nice voice, what a nice person. So she, he had to call back a week later, and he got Cricket again, and and again, he thought, wow, she, she is really nice. And he discovered he needed to call that sporting good company a lot. You know, he, he called him week after week. And when Cricket wasn't there, he didn't need to talk so long. But then when she was, he talked longer. And eventually they exchanged phone numbers. They began to have long, hour-long, two-hour-long phone conversations. He lived in New Mexico. She lived in California. Eventually she flew out and met him in New Mexico and went to one of his baseball games. And, and they fell in love. And she asked Cricket to marry him, but before they would marry, Cricket said, there's something we have to get straight. 
She said, I am committed to Jesus Christ. That's the center of my life. And I have to know where you stand. And he said, Cricket, I'm right where you are. I am committed to Jesus Christ. I want Jesus to be the center of our relationship. Hollywood didn't cover that part of the relationship at all in the movie. So they got married. And then just a few months later, they were driving, riding in a car on their way to another baseball game when a truck hit them from behind. Their car flipped. The car was crushed, landed on Cricket. Cricket's uh, head was crushed. And she was severely, severe head injury, brain injury. She was in a coma for quite some time. And finally, when, when, when she woke up, her memory came back to her. But she looked at Kim, and she didn't recognize him. In fact, she had no idea who he was, didn't know they were married, totally had erased the last couple years of her life. And Kim didn't know what to do. He was married to a woman who didn't know him, didn't know she was married to him, and really, she didn't like him. And she had to go through, she had to go through recovery. Her personality had changed. Now she, she was a very angry person. And... And her rehab, she had to learn to walk again. She had to learn to talk again. And he tried to help her through this rehab. And she would become angry and she would yell at him. And she would tell him, I don't even want you around here. I don't even know who you are. But Kim said he had made a vow. He had committed in front of a pastor and a bunch of people that for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as they both would live, that he was committed to cricket. And so he stayed committed. And over the weeks and the months and the year that followed, little by little by little, Cricket began to like and then love Kim. And she agreed to marry him again. And so they stood again and they renewed their vows. And each of them, without the other one knowing, brought out a new wedding ring as a new commitment. And they were remarried. And they're still married today and have, have kids together. And she never has recovered her memory of that time before the car wreck. What a beautiful picture of covenant relationship. What a beautiful picture of the love God has for you. He said, you may forget about me. You may ignore me. You may refuse to accept the free offer of grace that I have given through my son Jesus. But I love you. And when you're ready to open your heart, it's a covenant relationship, and it's not going to be based on a contract or rules or how well you do, but it's going to be based entirely on my promise to love you for the rest of eternity. So as you relate to God, do you see it more as slave or son, rules or relationship, contract or covenant? Final picture. God sees your life through history. He sees the mistakes that you made. He sees the um, promises that you break. He sees the way that you have hurt other people. He sees the way that you have been hurt. He sees that you have committed to do things and then you didn't do them. And he sees that your life is headed nowhere if there's not a drastic change. And so he sends his only son, Jesus Christ, and he says, Jesus, you... You have to do something. We have to do something. We can't let this stand. And so Jesus comes to earth and he lives the perfect life. He obeys the 613 commands. And because he is perfect, the humans can't accept that, can't accept the perfect uh, son of God. And so they arrest him 
and they crucify him for your sins and for my sins and for the mistakes I made and for the promises I broke and for all of that. And so Jesus hangs on a cross, a rugged cross with a crown of thorns in his head with blood pouring down his face and nails in his hands and nails in his feet and in excruciating pain. He looks across history and he sees you and all you are and your life and everything you've done and everything you will do. And from that cross, he says, it doesn't matter. It's not about your performance or what you've done or what other people have done. It's, it, that's immaterial. Jesus says, I'm here because I love you. I'm here because I want to see you whole. I'm here because I promise that you are going to inherit eternal life in the kingdom of God. And whether you break the rules or keep the rules, or whether you have a scorecard or you don't have a scorecard, if you'll accept my free offer of grace, I will always, always love you. Do one more thing for me. I, I want to just kind of do a thought experience. I'd like for you to hold your hands out like this and just make really tight fists. And every, everybody do this. We'd hate to point you out and laugh at you, but we're ready. And I want you to close your eyes. And nothing strange is going to happen, but, but I think this is something we can experience. Close your eyes. I want you to make your fists as tight as you can. And as you have your eyes closed, I want you to think about the worst mistake that you ever made. Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was something you said to a parent. Maybe it was something that happened in a car that you just wish you could take back. Maybe it was a lie that you told or a promise that you broke. I want you to think about the person that you've hurt most in life and the regret that you feel for that. And hold it tightly. And imagine that that's what you're holding in your fist is that regret, that mistake. I want you to think about the person who has hurt you. I want you to think about that man or that woman who stood and said that they would love you forever until death do you part and they lied and they didn't. I want you to think about that person and hold them tightly, tightly in your hand. I want you to think about every time you've told God you would follow him and do what he says and then you broke your promise and you didn't do it. And I want you to hold those broken promises tightly in your fist. And now I want you to think about the cross where Christ went for every one of those mistakes you're holding and every one of those broken promises and every one of those hurts. And he took them to the cross with him. And it was for those things that he was beaten and nailed to a cross and died. And now I want you to slowly open your hands. I want you to feel the blood of Jesus as it pours over your hands. And as disgusting as that seems, it, you see that blood pouring over your hands. And as it does, the mistake is washed away. And the pain and the broken promise and the hurt is washed. And now the pure, clean, crystal clear water of God's love washes the blood off of your hands. 
And I want you to just sit quietly for a moment and experience the pure love of God. Paul said that he wished that you could experience the height and depth and width of the love of God. And just experience what it is to relate to God, not based on who you are, what you've done, what you're going to do, but just on his love for you. And as you sit, let me pray for you. Dear Father, you have loved us more than we can imagine. Before we were born, you loved us. Knowing the mess that we might make of life, you loved us. When you have seen the hurt that has come into our lives, it has broken your heart. And Lord, for some today, for the very first time, they're experiencing the purity of your love. And as they say, Lord, I'm sorry for my past. I want to follow you in my future. I pray that they will feel that, pour, that outpouring of love in their heart and in their life. And Lord, many of us have said that prayer, and yet we have lived our lives as slaves, and we have lived as though there is some set of rules instead of loving you and loving those around us. And Lord, today again, we just want to experience your pure love. And Lord, we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen.